Welcome to New Thinking for a New World, a Tilburg Foundation podcast. I am Alan Stoga, your host. Each week, I bring you conversations with people who think differently about the great issues that are shaping our world. Geopolitics, disruptive tech, mass migration, the changing climate, culture wars, all of it is grist for our mill. I hope you enjoy listening. I also hope you will let me know what you think and that you join the conversation at telbergfoundation.org. And now for today's episode of New Thinking for a New World. It's not an exercise in American exceptionalism to imagine that people around the world are aware that Donald Trump is the only American president ever to have been criminally indicted. He is now facing not one, but two separate trials, even as he campaigns to become president again. Moreover, it seems likely that another two indictments are on the way, establishing a record for presidential indictments that will probably stand for a long time. However, most indictments don't lead to convictions, and even conviction by itself does not preclude winning elections or taking office. As they say, it's complicated. Today, we're going to try to unravel some of those complications, not about the politics of Trump's unprecedented situation, but about the legal and judicial aspects of the mess that he has created for himself, for the United States, and arguably, perhaps, for the rest of the world. My guest is June Kim, a partner at Cleary Gottlieb, a leading global law firm who is former acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Welcome, June, to New Thinking for New World. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the details, I want to ask the 60,000-foot question. This is your world. How does a former U.S. attorney even think about the criminal indictment of a former American president? That's a very good question. And, you know, even for someone who was a prosecutor for a long time and a former acting U.S. attorney, this is unprecedented and a huge deal. As you've noted, he is the first former president to be indicted. Uh, And as you've noted, he's he hasn't just been indicted once, he's been indicted twice, once by the federal government and one by the uh, Manhattan District Attorney. And so thinking about charging a former president is something that is hard to get your mind around because it's never happened before. And it raises all kinds of uh, implications, both legal, but also political, and also what, you know, that means for us as a country and as a society. Uh, and so it's a, it's, it's unprecedented uh, and it's a, and it is a, a very, very significant series of events. I want to go into the details, but let's stay at 60,000 for a second Do you see this, do you think of this as proof that the system is working or proof that the system is not working? I would view it as proof that the system can work. Jury's still out. Jury's still out into, it's it's hard to answer that question without thinking about, do you think this is a good thing or bad thing, right? But, and, and, you know, this country is divided on that. But the fact that a former president can be charged 
is an indication that the system is working, meaning that um, people are equal under the law as they should be. You know, all the courtrooms uh, in America will have equal under the law or some version of that etched into the marble because that's a foundational principle of a justice system that is deemed to be working, right? You don't have different sets of rules for those who are powerful and not powerful or rich or poor. Fundamental guiding principle for our system of justice and the system of justice for most countries around the world, whether they live up to it or not, is that we are equal under the law. And the fact that a former president can be and is indicted does show that it has worked and that that the mere fact that you were in fact the former president, that you do in fact have a lot of power, that you continue to have uh, support uh, among you know parts of the public who uh, can be and 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 we have seen will be enraged by this type of decision. The fact that it happened and can happen shows that the, the system uh, can handle it. And that's without prejudice to the outcome, because obviously how this evolves, what else happens when it finally reaches some conclusion, all of that will be part of the answer to my question. But your point is an excellent one. The mere fact that it started already is a declaration about the system working. Right. And the reason I paused. I was wondering. Because if you have a view that this these indictments are purely politically motivated and are not based on the evidence in the law, and if you are part of this populate of the country that believes that, then I assume you think this is a system that is not working properly. Putting aside, sort of my point was, it is a system that uh, worked in the sense that you could and, and prosecutors did charge a former president despite all of the uh, support, influence, and power that he had. It's almost... In a weird way, I think, unfortunate that there are two indictments and there could be a total of four indictments because it could well feed into a narrative that this is all political. It is piling on. Um, never mind the merits of the individual case and the complete separability of those cases, uh, but that it, clearly we're going to be dealing with that legal track, the political track, perhaps even the social track for the next many, 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 I suspect even more months. You know, people will have views and have developed views about whether these indictments are righteous or based on the evidence and not political without ever reading the indictment. I mean, most people probably have not. And so they have that view without actually looking to see if the ev- you know, there is sufficient evidence. Ultimately, there will be a trial and, and there will be trials 
And those in those trials, there will be evidence that's presented to a court and a jury will ultimately decide. But unfortunately, my prediction is uh, people who have the view that this is politically driven will think that regardless of whether the evidence, you know, that's actually um, comes out during a trial is overwhelming or not. And, and in some ways, vice versa, versa, people who hate Donald Trump and uh, who b- believe that he, you know, violated many laws and should be prosecuted will also have that view, I would suspect, without necessarily paying all that much attention to the actual evidence trial. Let's drill down a bit, particularly on the federal case um, that was filed in Miami, the classified documents case. Uh, We can't, we probably should just read the damn indictment to people. We can't do that. Um, What is, in a nutshell, what's it about from your perspective? The federal indictment is what we call a speaking indictment. And by that, I mean, it lays out quite a bit of facts that support the indictment. That's not always the case. Indictments do not have to contain much beyond the charging language, meaning a recitation of the statutes that were violated. This indictment uh, has additional facts that support the charges. And at bottom, it's it, it paints a picture of a person who uh, clearly did not take seriously the um, obligations and requirements of handling classified documents that um, took uh, many classified documents with him uh, outside of uh, the places that you are um, required to review classified documents, shared it openly and did so at least, you know, based on the evidence that we've heard, knowing that that's not something you're supposed to do, and then took steps to obstruct the investigation into the use and handling of classified documents. So as someone who um, was a former prosecutor and in you know, law enforcement as a, law, as a lawyer and having had access to you know, classified documents and their various levels of classification, there are very, very strict rules around it, including you know, documents of uh, this, the strictest classification. You can, far from taking it home or traveling with it or leaving it in boxes in a bathroom, you can only look at them in, you know, certain rooms, skiffs, secure rooms where, you know, you have to leave your cell phone outside the door. It's already been checked to make sure that no one can listen in and there are no bugs or anything. And you, and you re- read those in there uh, and then you, and you walk out without the document. And, and uh when you receive the classifications to review those documents, you're told that that's how you have to handle it. 
and failure to do so could expose you to criminal liability. So those laws apply to a president, a vice president, a cabinet minister? Correct. I mean, they, they, they apply to anyone who has access, who's given access to those. Now, I know, you know, the, the former president has said at various times that he could have himself declassified the documents. There are procedures that can be followed to declassify documents. The fact of the matter is, I don't, you know, you can't just declassify it after the fact and after you've been accused of mishandling classified documents. His spokesmen are now making the claim that he's covered by the Presidential Records Act, which they're saying is the only law that applies to presidents and their records. I know it is a law that applies to presidents and their records. And like most laws, I have the impression that the the overlapping of the laws has never really been parsed carefully. Um, But does the Presidential Records Act come into play here other than as as a potential defense? Yeah, it strikes me as that it's a it's a bit of a red herring. I mean, it's the Presidential Records Act doesn't negate all of the laws and rules surrounding classified information. I mean, under that theory, um, all of these rules and obligations surrounding the handling of classified documents wouldn't would not apply to the president. I don't. That's not, I don't think there's any legal basis for that kind of argument. As you pointed out, you can always find different laws that apply to a same set of facts. And it doesn't mean that because you didn't violate one set of laws that you didn't also, that you therefore didn't violate any laws. There's a lot of laws that you need to comply with at any given time. and place. Thanks for listening so far. I hope you're enjoying the conversation as much as I have. If you haven't already, please subscribe on the platform of your choice and rate us on Apple Podcast. Now back to today's discussion, sponsored by the Stavros Niarchus Foundation, SNF. As you said, the president seems to be on record, amazingly, sharing some very interesting documents with people that have never even seen the inside of a skiff, never mind inside of a, 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 a form to allow them to look at classified documents. Certainly sounds to the layman like me that it's a pretty clear open and shut case. And I've heard some lawyers argue that if this were anyone other than a former president, uh, it would be case closed pretty quickly. That that may be an unfair question. If it is, I w- I'll withdraw it. But on its merits, it looks like a pretty solid case based on what's been made public so far. It does. Uh, it does look like a pretty solid case based on you know what's been disclosed, disclosed so far. And I think it's a case that appears to get stronger and stronger as he speaks more and more about why he did it, why it's a weak case, because it's a constantly shifting response and narrative, right? First, it's, I could have declassified it. 
myself, so it can't be a crime. Second is I didn't really show any classified documents. It was just newspaper articles. And these defenses or things that are said in defense are themselves internally inconsistent. And then they're also inconsistent. They will be and appear to be inconsistent with demonstrable facts. And so when you have a person who gives you three different stories and explanations, you know, by definition, you know, at a minimum, two of them have to be wrong or are lies. And generally speaking, that type of behavior where people come up with stories in response that are demonstrably untrue and are internally inconsistent makes it an easier case to prove to a jury. You can imagine that closing argument to a jury, which says, you listen to their defense. You know, it's, you know, it's this, then it's that, and then it's this. Well, you know that not all of those can be true. And you know the truth because you've seen the evidence that he knew it was classified documents and it wasn't being handled properly. So I think in that way, it appears to be a pretty strong case that it gets stronger and stronger. But I feel in some ways with this former president, sort of the, the normal rules, you go out the window a little bit and it's hard to predict um, even um, in a controlled courtroom, how you know a jury can and will react and respond. Criminal cases require unanimous verdicts, so every juror needs to vote guilty for there to be a conviction. And um, and the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a high standard. Um, and so those are all you know, factors to consider. You did start the podcast by saying indictment doesn't always or necessarily lead to conviction. Generally speaking, indictments um, very frequently lead to conviction. The success rate of at least federal prosecutions are very, very high in the 90 somewhat percent in part because that includes guilty pleas and trials. And indeed, that was the distinction I was trying to get to, so I'm glad you clarified it. But even those that go to trial, it's it's the federal success rate is quite high. Uh, it's in part because federal prosecutors tend to be a bit more conservative and buttoned down about the proof before bringing an indictment. Um, and they have a little bit more of an ability to to exercise their discretion in bringing the cases. So will not generally bring cases that are weaker. And so the success rate even for you know cases that go to trial and where the defendant did not plead guilty tend to be quite high in the federal system. The state, it depends state by state and you know, by crimes. Uh, timeline. 
on the federal case, uh, clearly there hasn't, trial has not yet been set or rather it's been set and changed once, it's going to be changed again. Can you guess at what the timeline might look like? And I recognize it's a complete guess at this point. My guess would be that it will take a matter of months in, um, at a minimum because normal cases usually go to take a few months before they go to trial. This case obviously involves a lot of documents that, that are classified and you know, just the dealing with classified documents in the course of a, uh, a case takes time. You know, the lawyers actually need to become, uh, get authorization, right, clearance uh, to review classified documents. Some of them might not uh, be currently able to. Um, and there clearly are going to be a lot of motions, right? What takes time in before a case can go to trial really are two things. One is discovery, the the production of documents that's important to the case and to, to any defense. And that's the part when, when the discovery includes classified documents, it takes more time. And then motions, right? Motions made by the defendant to do various things, suppress evidence, dismiss charges in the indictment, make motions about proper venue. Here, I, I expect this will be a case that the former president and his lawyers will fight very hard and make a lot of motions. And those motions need to be briefed and then decided. So that will be a few months. Um, my guess is that the judge and every all the parties involved will have in the back of their minds as a selection coming up. And they will probably want the case resolved or going to trial at least before that. So I, I do think there's some, there will be some pressure to move it along uh, as quickly as possible. So that's why I could see this happening um, early next year, maybe, if they can. Let me pull in a couple threads. One is, as you've already mentioned, some of these documents appear to have been highly, highly classified which means they're unlikely, except in an incredibly redacted version that wouldn't mean anything to a jury, to be introduced into a courtroom. From the prosecutor's point of view, how do you make the case without being able to use, presumably, that kind of evidence that you can't use in open court, and we only do open courts in the United States? Right. I would think the court um, will find a way to address that. There's a number of ways you could do it. One is you could get a, a stipulation or an agreement or an, a ruling from the court that these documents are in fact classified. Because that's really a legal determination that does not is not a, a credibility or factual issue for the jury to decide. And so the court, the judge can make the ruling like, yes, these were in fact classified documents and um, the jury would be then informed without actually being shown the documents that you know X number of documents were in fact classified. 
you can accept that as a fact. If the defendant decides to challenge that, right, which you which you may very well and say, I maybe he'll say I, I declassified it. Whether you know you can declassify a document after the fact is not a factual question that a jury would decide. That's something that a judge would decide in any event. So that that would be likely the subject of motions. That wouldn't go to the jury anyway. So let's go back to the timeline. Best guess, sometime, maybe in the first half of next year, a trial convenes. Jury selected, trial convenes. Uh, does the defendant have to show up in trial? In this case, I'm thinking of someone who's out campaigning for the presidency of the United States, which is why I'm asking. He he's obviously has a right to. A defendant can waive their personal appearance at a trial. Uh, sometimes it's forced on defendants very rarely. You know, there are instances where a defendant acts up in a courtroom, for example, or it appears to be a danger to people in the courtroom. Judges can say, well, I'm not going to let you sit in the courtroom. You know, you can observe it from video conference or otherwise. But defendants have a constitutional right to be to be at their own criminal trial, to, to face, uh, so to speak, the accusers. Um, and so they have a right. They don't have to be there. A corollary question for someone who's campaigning for the presidency and has the sort of habits that, that Donald Trump has shown on the campaign is that he tends to talk about everybody and everything. I would guess that a judge would be rather unhappy to have a defendant litigating his trial out in public before the nation, even while the courtroom is proceeding. How does a judge in practice control that? Again, uncharted territory, nothing like this has ever happened. Uh, It is the intersection between a bunch of different rights, uh, perhaps. This is an unprecedented situation, but highly public defendants who get news coverage and who might otherwise speak publicly regularly being on trial, that's not completely unheard of. And how judges generally deal with that is they're very reluctant to muzzle or gag a defendant from speaking their mind leading up to the trial. Right, because there are First Amendment issues. But once a trial begins and a jury is being selected, then judges have much more of an ability under the law to to rein in otherwise competing interests of freedom of speech and expression because of the risk that you're now undermining the the trial. Um, And generally speaking, the judges will tell litigants uh, where a jury has been impaneled to not speak about the case publicly during the course of the trial. And that's that's a very common ruling. 
On the same time, at the same time, jurors are told, do not read anything about this case. And you, you approach it through both directions to try to ensure that the trial itself is not negatively impacted by news stories or things that you say outside of the courtroom. You know, trials in America and criminal trials in particular are very, very controlled affairs as they need to be because every piece of information or evidence, as it's called in the courtroom, that a jury considers, you have to know what it is. You have to be able to object to it. You have to be able to keep track of the evidence. You know, there's a record that's being kept of everything that's going on in the trial because a jury's determination has to be based only on the evidence that's been admitted in court. And the law, as the judge has provided it to the jury, that way you know what the judgment was. The judgment can be appealed by 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 a higher level court that knows exactly what the jury considered, right, and didn't consider. And if you allow them, the jurors, to listen to watch TV and bring in all sorts of information from outside the court, that's absolutely impermissible in, in a legal proceeding. And so courts are very used to taking steps necessary to ensure that. Here, this is an, a very, very unique situation where there are added challenges. He will say, well, I'm entitled to campaign, right? I'm running for president. And so this is infringing on our democracy. Uh, uh, but that balance will have to be struck by the judge. And it could, you know, I would think that a judge is likely to say, I understand you're running for president. You have a right to campaign. But during this trial, which will last for you know, X weeks, you need to not talk about what's going on in this trial. And that kind of a limited restriction I think would be reasonable. Otherwise, you do run the risk, significant risk, right, that the jury's decision will be influenced by things that are going on outside the court. All of which puts an enormous burden on the judge. There's always burdens on the judge. That's what goes with their job. But in this case, an extraordinary burden. Um, And the judge, as we all know, was originally appointed by Trump. That has gotten all sorts of commentary, plus and minus, sort of irrelevant because she is the judge who's going to hear the case. Is that a problem? Ironically, it's before, you know, President Trump, who commonly would call judges that he expected would rule against him or or do things he didn't like as Obama judges or uh, and that's become much more commonplace to not only look for but expect biases political biases on the part of judges so it's not always that has not always been the case And particularly with the federal bench, um, there generally was a presumption that, yes, although people may have, judges may have differing political views and leanings, and on issues where those views and leanings you would expect to have an impact on your 
decisions. You know, I'm thinking of abortion rights or gun rights and things where it is very intertwined with a person's political views. Trial judges generally, if you were to look at a Republican appointed or Democratic appointed district court judge, you generally actually wouldn't see that much of a difference in the way they ran their courtroom, their decisions about whether evidence should come in or not. Those are generally not political decisions. They are decisions about rules of evidence and and the application of pretty straightforward laws. You may disagree. People have differing views on hearsay or this and that, but it's they weren't political. And so um, going back to your question of is it a problem that this is a judge who was a Trump appointee, not necessarily, you know, I mean, she, she is someone who did make a, a ruling previously that was overturned by the circuit courts that was at the time, more, you know, favorable, the former president. But, and, and she may very well feel like she owes um, the former president for her position as a federal judge, but she's also someone who ha- has taken an oath, right, to to uphold the Constitution herself, and uh, we'll, we'll have to make judgments based on her um, best judgment about the facts and the law, which themselves are not inherently political decisions. Well, and that's consistent with your earlier statement about, yeah, we're all equal before the law because the law gets applied from a judicial point of view, not from a political point of view. I've got about two dozen questions for the next couple minutes. So let me though focus on a couple things. One very quickly, many, uh, many of indictments end up in plea bargains or a negotiated settlement. Um, I have been assuming that because of everything we've been talking about for the last half hour, plus the other cases yet to be unfolded, that if negotiation is in the picture, it's in the far distant picture. Is that a fair assumption? I think I think that's right. This is not a normal case. You're right that most normal cases end up in a pretrial resolution. Uh, seems hard for me to imagine a circumstance where the former president under oath admits to the violating the law and pleading guilty to a crime. He, he, based on, it seems to me, just my observations, he's not someone who regularly or willingly admits to do anything wrong. And that's, that's what a guilty plea requires. It will require a sworn, sworn statement in open court that I knew what I was doing was wrong and I knew that it was a crime. So timing, whether this case uh, or the New York state case or potentially the other cases, this saga is unlikely to be finished by the first week of November of 2024. So to be precise, can someone who has been indicted uh, be elected president? I think the answer to that is yes. 
I don't think there's anything, there is nothing in the constitution or otherwise that says an indicted person cannot be elected president. Can someone who has been convicted and exhausted his appeals uh, be elected president? I think so. Uh, I'm going to the next one, of course. Can someone who is in, indicted, convicted, appeals, maybe other cases still pending, assume office of the office of the presidency? Yeah, I, I'm not aware of any law that prohibits that. And I, I'm asking that only because, as you pointed out to me when we talked the other day, the Constitution is pretty clear. There's only three things that right. are required to be president, and none of them ever anticipated this kind of situation. So this is terra incognito, uh, to put it mildly. Yeah, I and mean, you could add to your questions, can someone in jail be elected president? I think the answer is yes. I mean, can someone run a country from jail? <laughs> I suppose <laughs> that's a harder question to answer. Right. And then, and then as you know, I think, you know, we spoke about this earlier. Can, well, it, is that all moot? Because if he wins the election and becomes president, can he just pardon himself? And again, the pardon power is pretty broad and that I'm not aware that that specific question has ever gone before the court of can a president pardon himself? Of course, the pardon would only work on the federal charges. To that point, it is, in popular mind, the ultimate get-out-of-jail-free card. I get elected, therefore I can pardon myself. You've just pointed out that the answer is it's never happened, so who knows? Yeah. John, I want to thank you for this conversation. Um, I hope we've helped people understand, at least get some answers to some of the questions out there. Uh, this is, in one sense, it's uncharted waters. In another sense, it's a normal case. Uh, you used the word abnormal before. When I was writing my notes and I came to that word, I actually wrote paranormal because this is such a bizarre situation. I wonder if we can even really anticipate where it goes. Uh, so I hope we have the opportunity to come back and have this conversation as and when these cases move ahead. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of New Thinking for a New World. I'm Alan Stoga, podcast host, and I look forward to your joining our next conversation. Remember, tell us what you think at telbergfoundation.org.